Hello, and welcome to today's Clinical Care Options Neuroscience Podcast, To the Rescue, Incorporating Rescue Medications into Epilepsy Treatment Plans. Today's episode features a conversation on the use of rescue therapies in epilepsy management between two expert clinicians, Dr. Atif Hussain, Division Chief of Epilepsy, Sleep, and Neurophysiology in the Department of Neurology at Duke University Medical Center in Durham, North Carolina, and Dr. John Stern, Director of the Epilepsy Clinical Program in the Department of Neurology at the University of California, Los Angeles. This episode is part of a larger educational program titled Planning Ahead, Development of a Seizure Action Plan with Rescue Medications. For more information on Drs. Hussein and Stern, along with a link to the complete program, including an on-demand webcast presentation and clinical thought, please visit the show notes for this episode. Now let's get started and hear what Drs. Hussein and Stern have to say. So John, rescue therapies are used often in, in patients with epilepsy. Can you tell me a little bit about how you use rescue therapy? I think we've ventured into a new era in epilepsy treatment with the increased opportunities for rescue treatment. You know, the idea that epilepsy management was a chronic medication alone is becoming less acceptable because we have the opportunities now to give people rescue treatment on an ad hoc basis. And so, you know, in my use, it's a matter of remembering that patient seizures are not consistently occurring in a set pattern, and sometimes patients will have periods of increased seizure frequency, and remembering that the rescue treatments have a role there to decrease that overall seizure number by curtailing or shortening that period of increased seizures. In your mind, what is the definition of rescue therapy? In other words, what qualifies as something that would require rescue therapy, or does everyone qualify for rescue therapy? You know, it's an interesting thought, and you know, I'm interested in your thought on this as well, but I guess one part of this would be rescue treatment is whatever is not standard day-to-day. It's intermittent, it's sort of acute therapy as compared to chronic. And then imagine rescue treatment is important for people who have clusters or increasing seizure frequency at certain times, but then rescue also, of course, relates to emergencies and people wanting to have a means to stop a seizure if they're away from access to healthcare in a more urgent situation. But what do you think? What is rescue therapy, Antifa? Yeah, I I think my attitude is similar to yours in that um, ideally we get to a point where patients don't need rescue therapy. In other words, their seizures are so well controlled that they don't have breakthroughs. But both you and I know that that is a goal, but not always achievable. So I think rescue therapy really spans the the spectrum. It can be used in people who have well-controlled seizures just for infrequent breakthroughs. I saw a patient um, this week who's been seizure-free for four or five years and had a breakthrough generalized tonic-clonic seizure. And both he and his parents are now looking for rescue therapy in addition to obviously adjusting his other medications. Even after five years, he had one seizure. We were talking about rescue therapy. I think that's appropriate because if you have a hard tonic-clonic seizure, having a rescue medication to abort it, to reduce the duration, I think is all reasonable. And on the other side of the spectrum are people who have very frequent seizures, but then will have even more frequent than they typically do and have clusters. And those clusters will often land them in an emergency room or otherwise lead to other complications. And to shorten that and to minimize that, I think rescue therapy is also needed. And so really spans 
the spectrum, I think, um, and with more reasonable rescue therapy now available, as opposed to what we used to have 10 years ago, I think it really becomes viable for many patients. Yeah, I completely agree. And your patient who had no seizures for a long time and then had that one seizure brings to mind the newly diagnosed patient, where I think rescue treatment comes up in my practice in two situations primarily. One is the newly diagnosed, it's where the patient and the family or those close to the patient are really terrified of another seizure occurring. They haven't begun treatment yet, but the concerns that go naturally with the diagnosis of epilepsy are there. And the question is to me, you know, what do we do if another one occurs? What happens if it doesn't stop? You know, a lot of the what ifs that go with that new diagnosis. And so rescue treatment makes sense then as a way of expanding upon the safety discussion we have with patients when newly diagnosed. It becomes almost like an insurance policy in the sense that we pay insurance premiums hoping we never need to use the insurance. And so um, the rescue treatment prescription in a way in those situations many times is a way of covering the worst possibility. The other side of the situation is that patient who has, of course, the clusters. And in that situation, it's very different in, in concept in that, you know, question is, what is a cluster? And I'm curious to hear your take on how do you define a cluster when, when we talk about clusters of seizures? Just before I answer that, I really like your analogy of it being an insurance policy. I think that is a good way to look at it, especially for the patients who are either have been well controlled and just don't want to have a really bad seizure or newly diagnosed patient. But in terms of what defines a cluster, I think that again depends on the patient. Clearly, there are well defined or, or, or accepted definitions for what qualifies as a cluster as it relates to a clinical trial. And I think that's reasonable to define a cluster in a certain way for a clinical trial, sort of try to homogenize a patient population. But I think in life, in for patients on their day-to-day basis, life, a cluster to me is something that's different than what would be a typical seizure for that. So it could be a flurry of seizures, a particularly hard seizure, or just something unusual that uh, has not happened before that they feel like uh, needs to be aborted quickly. So it can span a, a number of different uh, aspects in my mind, uh, and it's not necessarily related to what is defined as a cluster in a clinical trial. How do you approach it? No, I, I completely agree. And I, of course, trials have to have definitions for inclusion and exclusion, but those definitions are created for the trials because we in the epilepsy community, the international academic community, community for epilepsy don't have a standard definition for cluster. And it's really a vexing statistical problem. You know, without that in the real world and in real practice, it really comes down to individual patients, kind of like what you said. And I ended up posing it to patients where if they know from their seizure pattern that another seizure is likely to occur over a short period of time after a seizure, I think of that as being a sign of um, cluster. And you can tell them the definition, it's really qualitative, not quantitative. And I think an important part of the definition that I use is likely instead of absolutely, because you never know. And in these situations, sometimes you have to make a decision when you think, well, I think I'm probably going to have another seizure later, but I don't know. And is it worth treating then to prevent? Well, that's the personal decision. But I think it's worthy of posing that question to oneself or for the family to pose that question, knowing that when a person has clusters, they don't necessarily have clusters every single time, but you still have to make a decision. Yeah, I, th- I think that that raises a really interesting point. I, and, and as you were talking, I'm thinking about the patient who has not yet had a seizure, but feels like they might have a seizure. 
that's a little more challenging. In other words, they have this prodrome, if you will. Do you think it would be reasonable to take rescue therapy for a prodrome? That's a great question. I hadn't really thought of it that way before because prodromes you know, are not auras. Prodromes are states that um, indicate to the patient that they're likely to have a seizure soon. And that state can last a few hours or sometimes longer. But if that person has a reliable prodrome, I think it's worthwhile doing whatever can be done to protect the person, both in terms of activities as well as medical interventions, which includes rescue. Every seizure needs to be prevented. And so whatever we can do, whatever information we have about a person um, that's useful towards preventing a seizure, I think is worth paying attention to. Yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a great point. And one thing to, I guess, caution patients about, and it's obviously patient-dependent, as is everything, is how often the patients feel like they have a prodrome and how often that prodrome consistently leads into one of their typical seizures. If the prodrome is happening several times a day or every day or many times a week and not leading into a seizure, those are patients I would be reluctant to encourage to use a rescue therapy. But um, as you say, if it consistently is leading into a clinical seizure then and happens infrequently, then that might be something to consider. Yeah, I think you're reflecting on how nuance is so important in the treatment of epilepsy and understanding the pattern and having a, a detailed discussion with the patient about that person's own pattern is valuable. Yeah. I, mean, I suppose that's one part of care for epilepsy that I find rewarding is getting into detailed conversations, trying to figure out what's the pattern that's going to be helpful to lead that person, to help that person get the seizure control they want. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Let's talk for a moment about um, the drugs that we use, uh, mechanisms of action. In my mind, it's just benzos of various types. Do you have any other thoughts about other mechanisms of actions or other types of drugs? For rescue treatment, benzos, of course, are the classic mechanism. We think of them as having immediate benefit, and that's a, a legacy of the use of the benzos for many decades. But I, I think there are, I mean, I can think of situations where I have a patient who might alter their chronic medication dose uh, according to times of greater vulnerability, in increasing the number of pills by one per day with medication fluctuating. So, you know, I suppose that counts in a way of rescue. Maybe it's the gray area between chronic and acute, where it's a, a flexible chronic for management. What do you think? Yeah, no, I think that's excellent. And as you were talking, uh, you know, the one way that I use that, and perhaps you do as well, is for women who have uh, catamenial epilepsy or, or seizures that are, are exacerbated at certain times of their, in, in their menstrual cycle, and then adjusting the medication by a pill or two more along those uh, or during those high-risk times, I think is a form of, could be considered a form of rescue therapy, just like you outlined. Instead of using a benzo, you're using the same drug that they're on at a slightly higher dose. Yeah. Do you have concerns with rescue medications? Are there certain patients you might think would not be good patients for the use of a benzo as a rescue medication? Yeah, I think that's a great point as well. I think, um, you know, as we evaluate patients and, and uh, think about the other medications that they've, they're on and sort of the reliability, if you will, the uh, adherence to, to their regular medications, I think there are some patients that we would be more cautious and I'm more cautious about if they have a strong history of alcohol use and that is a trigger for them. That might be a concern for me to use a rescue medication if there's uh, a lot of alcohol use involved. If there's a lot of other comorbidities 
that would make benzo use more problematic, such as uh, a history of uh, addiction and so on and so forth. Those are things that I would be somewhat more cautious about, but I don't think that that would preclude the use, but certainly make one more cautious. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the other comorbidity I, I, I come across is an anxiety disorder where the person ends up using the rescue medication to treat the anxiety, which sometimes is clearly separate from the epilepsy. Sometimes it's not, depending upon that person's aura. But the issue really is ultimately how often is it being used and is it being overused? Because then it's no longer rescue medication, it's chronic therapy, and that's not the point. Yeah, I think that the intranasal preparations give a certain advantage to us when we're thinking about counseling patients for how often to use it, because it does limit the patient to how many times they can use per month. And it's a limitation that we don't have with the tablets, where we can be more certain that it's not being overused to some extent. I mean, is that how you see it also? Yeah, I, I think that that's my concern as well. I do think that the intranasal preparation is, is something that gives us a lot of flexibility. It certainly makes it very easy for someone else to administer the medication. Uh, and that really wasn't the case, uh, you know, 10 years ago when we only had uh, rectal preparations. Obviously, the rectal preparations are hardly ever used in my practice. I imagine yours is, is comparable. But there are oral preparations. You're probably, uh, like I have used oral, the clonazepam wafers. What are your thoughts about the types of routes of administration? Do you still have patients that, that you have on rectal benzodiazepines? Very few now, but I did until a few years ago, and it would be typically the intellectually disabled adult, um, someone who's non-independent, who has very frequent seizures. And in those situations, because of the clustering, uh, the caregiver, who may be professional, depending upon that patient's level of disability, would get the rectal. But I've had the very pleasant experience of telling such caregivers about the nasal and seeing their sense of interest in that because the rectal is it's not a question of embarrassment necessary for the patient but it is really difficult to administer rectal in an adult because of positioning and access and i wonder how often it wasn't administered properly because of those those obstacles whereas of course the nasal is easy in any situation yeah no i i agree uh, absolutely and and I remember it doesn't happen very often anymore, but uh, certainly previously when I was using rectal much more often and the transition to intranasal, the look on the caregiver and if the patient was, you know, uh, not intellectually disabled, the look on their face in terms of what a relief um, that we don't have to do this anymore is, is quite spectacular. What do you think of the oral, oral dissolved wafers? Do you use those much? A little bit, not so much. It's still oral, so it has an advantage in terms of easy swallowing, but it's still swallowing. You know, the way I think about it, maybe taking that a little bit different direction, is the pharmacokinetics in that, you know, there is no ideal, perfect T-max time for rescue. It really depends upon the patient need. And so in thinking about rescue treatment, maybe it's a matter of matching when is the rescue treatment needed? When do you want the coverage, in other words? after that seizure. You know, maybe to bring this, make it more clear is I'm thinking about a situation, let's say you have a patient in front of you with an IV catheter in place who has a seizure and you wanna minimize the risk of seizures over the next few hours, a bolus of an intravenous drug is not gonna be the right way to go because the CMAX is gonna occur very quickly and then it's gonna clear very quickly. Whereas having a more distributed over time release of medication can be better for them. And oral has a slower absorption the nasal and um, often can have a 
a longer effect. And so if you don't need the rescue immediately and you're thinking more about a day, maybe oral makes sense. If you need rescue over the next few hours, nasal. If you need, of course, seizure control in the next minute, intravenous makes the most sense. So I end up shifting it in that perspective. Is that something you yeah. come across? Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a great way to think about it. And so, you know, the example I gave earlier is for cataminial epilepsy. If you're going to increase the number of pills that someone is taking, then very reasonable to go the oral route and increase the number of pills as a chronic or relatively chronic increase in their levels as opposed to an acute administration of a, an abortive medication. So I think that's a really reasonable way to look at it. You know, I wonder if you have thoughts about the mechanism of action or mechanism of absorption uh, through the intranasal route. Do you think that is still through uh, absorption into the bloodstream or is there a more direct mechanism? There was some talk that there's absorption of the benzodiazepine through the cribriform plate directly into the brain, into the CSF. And I know that some of the companies had looked into studies to look at that, but that would be a really interesting way and a very presumably rapid way of getting benzodiazepines into the brain to have an effect on seizure control. Yeah, exactly. I'm intrigued by that as well. I wonder how much of the effect is in that direction. In the end, of course, we have to fall back upon the clinical trials and looking at time of benefit and duration of benefit, which are maybe more important, but I think the direct access is where we're going. If we want fast, we have to think about the means of absorption or the mechanism of absorption. What do you think are the challenges going forward, thinking about epilepsy management and the shift in thinking of a combination of acute and chronic therapy? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of it, like is uh, the case with uh, chronic therapy, finding combinations and finding the right drugs that work with acute medications as well as chronic medications, finding that, that balance. Are there any drugs that you think would be a problem to use? Well, let me back up. Let me ask it a different way. Are there any drugs that a patient might use chronically that would deter you from using a rescue medication if we're assuming the rescue medication is a benzodiazepine? In other words, would chronic use of a benzodiazepine such as clobazam, would that be a deterrent to using a intranasal rescue medication? For me, not really. I do use them, and I don't think a acute dose of uh, uh, intranasal benzodiazepine would be a deterrent in someone who's on chronic clobazam uh, therapy. Yeah, I agree. I do the same thing, and I think the question's a valid question. I've posed a question to myself, of course, and wondering, but I, in reality, I, I've never seen a problem from it, and I do see benefit from it. And um, we have flexibility in the dosing of each of the medications we use chronically, including clobazam. And so, it really shouldn't deter from use of a medication, a rescue medication that has some overlap, not complete overlap in the mechanism. One of the things I found very useful about uh, intranasal therapies is the variability of doses available. However, I also find that when I see patients that are seeing me for the first time or have been seeing a primary care doctor, a general neurologist, as is often the case, they've been underdosed with their rescue therapy. Do you find that as well? Yeah, I, I do. And dosing is, of course, our challenge is figuring you know, what instruction to give, keeping in mind that in a situation when a rescue treatment is being used, the person giving it, if it's not the patient, or if, it, if a person taking it, if it is a patient, is going to be distracted and stressed. And so I guess I'm heading into the direction of trying to keep it as simple as possible. But 
the dose is something we choose prior to the situation. And that's our challenge is trying to figure what the instructions should be to keep it straightforward and still maximize the benefit. You know, I think part of the problem, I think, is in the follow-up because the patient might say, well, I did the rescue medication, but it didn't help. But then the story is, well, another seizure didn't occur or the seizure ended after a couple of minutes. And the unknowable part is maybe it did help and you just don't know. And so part of the use of the rescue medications is education toward the patient to recognize what things can we not know and how much of what we do is based upon good evidence of it being the right direction without knowing in the instance whether it is helping or not. In parallel to that, just as a thought, is the person who's on an anti-seizure medication chronically who's still having seizures sometimes has the experience medications not helping, but in fact, it might be helping because the question is what would be the situation if the person wasn't on that regimen? Regardless, it's not enough. Yeah, that raises a really interesting thought. I've, I've had this question asked a few times, and I'm just curious how you would answer it. Doc, would you recommend using it if I have a cold? What if I'm congested? Can I still use my intranasal medication? Well, that's that's an easy question in the sense because that was looked at in the development and found to be not an issue in general, and that nasal congestion doesn't decrease the benefit in the, in the use of it in epilepsy. So that's one less thing to be worried about. Yeah, I, I think that's really important for patients to know that that's not a reason to not use the medication. So the question I, I get, which I find to be difficult, and that's counseling the patient for when to use it. And I'm curious what you say when the person says, okay, I, I want to use this, but how do I know whether I needed it or not at that time? Yeah, and that's always a, a tough question. I go back to the normal pattern of seizures. So the patient that I alluded to earlier, uh, who'd been seizure-free for four or five years and then had a breakthrough generalized tonic-clonic seizure, I think for him it's straightforward. If you have a, another seizure that's similar to this or someone witnesses it, you can use it in that case. The more difficult question is someone who has chronic epilepsy and maybe has a seizure once a month or once a week. Do you use it for each one of those or do you then hold off until it's something slightly different? And that's a tougher question. And I often will rely on the patient and have a discussion, come up with a joint sort of decision on, on how to approach that. By and large, for the average seizure that a patient has once a month or whatever, I don't use the benzodiazepine. On the other hand, if they do have a pattern of things going somewhat haywire, in other words, there are certain times when if they have a fever, they know if they have a seizure, they're going to have several in a row or have a flurry, or they know that if they have particular circumstance, then that's going to produce more seizures. In those situations, I'm much more likely to advocate for using it even after the first of their typical seizures. And then for the intellectually disabled, I think that becomes a little more easier because their patterns are a little more defined. And when they have clusters, I think it's a little more easier to prescribe and, and decide to use it. I think it's a really good point. I, I like the consideration of the context as another indicator as to whether this is going to be a cluster or not, because that's part of the pattern, but it's separate from the seizures themselves. And recognizing that the situation can be influential is really important. Yeah. Do you do any sort of workup before you prescribe a, a rescue medication? Are there certain contraindications, if you will, that you would um, pick up on before these are prescribed? I think we want to have a certainty of the diagnosis and 
clarity on when it's to be used and how to use it. And those are really my major considerations. What are yours? I think that's exactly right. I certainly don't send them for additional tests or levels or ECGs or anything of that sort. So I think you're absolutely right. So the context is what's most important rather than laboratory tests or EEGs. Thinking about epilepsy care going forward over the next few years and longer, a lot of my attention goes to the problem of the patterns of when seizures occur. Because we know now from intracranial recordings that are chronic and larger data sets from diaries that seizure occurrences are not at random times. There are patterns to them and there are cycles. And the question is, how do you leverage that information on an individual basis to provide better care? And if there are cycles, um, well, there are cycles, how much of that influences timing of medication, especially rescue medications? This is beyond where I think we are in conventional practice. But I have a sense that we are going to be at some point during our careers, hopefully, changing management based upon factors and not falling back on the idea that every patient takes the same medication every single day. What are your thoughts about this? Yeah, I think that's such a fascinating point. I mean, in the most obvious sense, we see this in women who have catamenial seizures. They have a clear pattern to when they have seizures. But we also know that there are ultradian rhythms to seizures as well. And these have been shown in large data sets, as you point out. I think this is where it becomes really critical for patients to have their own diaries and really document accurately when the seizures are happening. So I think that, you know, when we look at diaries, instead of looking at month to month, but once we get to a way of looking at large data sets for individual patients, we can then get to a better idea of predicting for each individual patient when their cluster is happening, when we know that patients do have periods of time when they're more likely to have seizures than in other periods of time. So as you say, the standard of taking 200 milligrams in the morning and 200 milligrams at night is probably not going to be the way of the future already. Oftentimes, I'm sure you do this as well, you'll you know, variably dose it depending on if the seizures are mostly nocturnal. Well, let me give a bigger chunk of dose at night. Basically, that's what we're doing with a very confined window. And I imagine expanding that window instead of just over a 24-hour period, over you know one month period or one year period. I, I think there's real potential to that. It's just a matter of getting the data set for the patient. Yeah, it's an exciting time as the care evolves before our eyes, thinking about the combination of better data collection of logging and detection of seizures and a greater recognition of flexibility and treatment and use of rescue medications to overall reduce the number of seizures a person has in a given period of time. Yeah, imagine the future. I mean, you know, the thing that patients with epilepsy tell me very often is the unpredictability of, of their seizures. Imagine if we get to a state where with big data, with, with large data sets, we can take away that unpredictability and maybe administer drugs, rescue medications at the point of most vulnerability. I think that would really change the face of uh, epilepsy treatment. Completely agree, and it's really nice talking about this. Atif, as usual, it was great speaking with you. I really appreciate your insights. I look forward to talking again soon. Thanks very much, John. It was a pleasure talking to you. I had a lot of fun talking about uh, things that we're both interested in. Take care. Thank you very much to Drs. Hussein and Stern, and thanks to you for joining us. As a reminder, to view the full program, Planning Ahead, Development of a Seizure Action Plan with Rescue Medications, 
And to learn more about this topic from clinical care options, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening.